All right, everybody, welcome back to another episode. Today, I am super excited to have on Dr. Spencer Nadolsky, and uh, he is the chief physician at Renaissance Periodization. So a lot of you are following Dr. Mike Isratel and his crew. He is the chief physician there. Just to read the brief intro uh, from his bio there, he is a board-certified obesity specialist, lipidologist, and family physician who has helped thousands of patients over the past nine years lose weight and keep it off. And um, that's just me saying it. I think you're also known as the doctor who lifts, right? <laughs> yeah, just a, a little marking thing. There's a bunch of other doctors who lift, but uh, I coined the term just to make sure uh, people understood how important lifting was for medicine. Yeah, uh, I guess your brother could also be called that because uh, both of you clearly look look like you lift. So, um, so uh, today we have a fascinating topic to talk about, and that is uh, weight loss medication in the treatment of obesity, and maybe not just in the treatment of obesity, but in general, because this is a very under discussed uh, topic that is super interesting, I believe, because that is really something that could revolutionize. The weight loss industry, of course, obesity treatment, which is a huge issue around the world, and I guess eventually even the fitness industry on the whole. So I find this whole topic very intriguing. And I guess as a a general intro for this whole thing, uh, you as someone who is working with uh, a lot of patients with obesity, I find the topic of obesity to be a fascinating one because weight management, managing body fat gain and loss is something that is relevant for pretty much everybody, I believe, who will be listening to this podcast, albeit many of them or most of them might not be struggling with obesity. But I think those of us who have these problems but have not struggled with obesity can sort of theorize what the real challenges of that population is, which is, you know, hunger. Of course, you get hungrier as you diet. All of us like to eat tasty foods. All of us occasionally will overeat on tasty foods. And sometimes that will make us put on a little bit more weight. But most of us have sort of a cutoff where, okay, I gained enough weight. I had my fun with tasty foods. It's time to stop. Uh, So, I'm just super fascinated by what are the mechanisms and what are the factors that make someone shoot way past that point where a lot of us would stop. I'm assuming that part of it is hunger. I'm assuming a lot of it has to do with cravings and kind of the whole uh, psychosocial aspect of eating and, and the cultural aspects of eating. So I guess if you had to boil it down, like what things lead people to become obese or morbidly obese. I don't know if that's still an accepted term. Maybe you can correct me on that. But yeah, can you just give us some intro on that? Yeah, I mean, you know, when when people talk about obesity from just a complete like physics standpoint, they'll say it's an energy balance issue. People are eating more calories than they're burning. It, it, that's, it's not really helpful because, like, why, is that, why does that happen? Why do some people do that and, and some people don't? Uh, for example, like, you know, unless something very traumatic happened to me physically or something, you can have brain tumors that just completely disrupt your, your hunger and you can have injuries that would make you very sedentary. If, unless something like that happens to me, I don't think I'll ever 
uh, have obesity. So why someone like me versus um, someone else, like you know, all my patients or whatever that, that come to see me? Well, in the general sense, on a population level, the expanse of uh, this obesity epidemic type of thing uh, really comes from the mismatch between our genetics and our environment. You know, we didn't you look at uh, elementary school, um, grade school, or whatever pictures from, you know, the 70s and 80s, and you compare it to the 90s, 2000s, 2010s, uh, and now, and you'll just, you'll notice a, a, a shift in uh, body mass indexes or, you know, whatever you want to say. You, you'll, see, you'll see a shift in size. Uh, basically. And so what, what would that be? Well, yep, we're eating too much. And why are we eating too much? Well, the only thing that's really changed or genetics really haven't changed, but uh, our environments have. And so there's a mismatch between our hunger uh, cues in our brain and, and uh, how much we actually eat. And, you know, there's some really cool studies that have looked into this with the processing of the, of the food and and the taste of the food and whatnot, but that's that's the gist. You know, if you look at, you know, you know, years ago, decades ago, there were still people that suffered from obesity. And and again, this is why it's complex because it's not just the environment. On an individual level, there may be some other reasons. Obviously, medical issues and and then strongly genetics. Um, the people with the, with the most genetic propensity, uh, those folks generally have. Um, Strong, stronger appetites. So if you if you put somebody with the most propensity towards obesity uh, uh, versus not, you, you know, you put them on an island where their environment is, they got to go fish and hunt and whatever, that person will still probably be heavier, uh, have more adipose and, and weight compared to the person without the genetics for obesity, but they wouldn't have that severe obesity that we see now. And, and going back to the terms, we generally say have obesity because we think of it as a um, we we think of it as a disease type of thing. You know, it, you can't catch it. Uh, that's kind of a misnomer of what people think diseases are. But uh, condition, disease, whatever you can have it. And then morbid obesity is is the old term for now. Probably what we we'd call class three obesity, which is like a BMI of forty and above. So we can kind of group it into classes to make it a little bit more specific as opposed to, hey, you had obesity or uh, or not. Um, you can kind of break it up to depend on the, the clinical course of it and, and the actual size of, of the person. Right. So um, just on the genetics topic for one second. So how much is understood at this moment in time about what those genetic factors are that predispose someone to reach grade, was it grade three obesity? That was the... Yeah, you can say cl classes, class three obesity and above. Yeah, in general, the, the differences are, it's in the central nervous system and likely in the appetite centers that are related to appetite. So people think, and I, I get in these arguments online, I don't even know why, I don't know why I waste my time, but... I think there are people that are lurking around and, and I, I help teach people obesity. I wouldn't call it a choice because it's a lot of it's just passive. We all kind of go through passively eating what's served to us and we don't choose to have that many more helpings than somebody else does. We, it's kind of a subconscious thing. 
So you combine that with environment. So when you know when you're younger and somebody, um, your family feeds you whatever food that you get. You know, if you're getting the highly processed food, you're going to subconsciously eat more than the family who's serving, you know, mostly whole satiating foods. Then you top it off with some genetics that kind of push you further in that direction where you're subconsciously eating more and you kind of passively go through life uh, gaining more and more weight. Now people are like, no, obesity is a choice. No, I'd say that the the choice of like, you know, each meal you do have a choice like, hey, I, sh- you know, I probably... Probably shouldn't eat this whole pizza, and instead I should have the whatever salad and sirloin and you know baked potato with minimal butter on it or something like that. Uh, yeah, you could technically make those choices, but going through life, it's kind of a passive thing. So the attempt to uh, to 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 prevent it, to actually make that conscious decision, is a choice. It's just that most of us don't really think about it that. Uh, that way. We don't wake up and just say, hey, I choose to have obesity today. I'm going to choose each meal so I can have obesity. It's, it's more of, it's just, we don't even think about it. But you can make the choice to prevent it um, or at least attempt to and <laughs> attempt to lose weight. So I will say that just real quick as a caveat. Right. So um, kind of one thing, uh, we talk about this a lot on the podcast with uh, kind of just friends of mine that are regular on this podcast. And uh, we are kind of just playing the armchair obesity expert here because obviously, largely, we can just theorize about these things. But one thing that we often brought up is like, look, imagine the hungriest you've ever felt like, uh, let's say you're dieting down to 7% body fat, you've been in a calorie deficit for four months, you haven't seen anything over whatever, like 1800 calories as a 180 pound guy. You're like thinking about food all the time. You never feel full after meals. Like imagine if someone had that at a body fat range, which would make them approach obesity or even be there already. Like, is that something that like happens from your clinical experience? Like, is that a real thing? Like are some people that for lack of a better term, screwed from a genetic standpoint? Yeah, it's 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 probably slightly different, but yeah, it, it's more so um, when the person attempts to lose weight and you, you give them what is the appropriate amount of calories they should eat for uh, a, a lesser body weight. And uh, and they're, they're just starving. And so like, why is it fair that I don't. I I actually eat a lot of calories. I, when I when I cut my calories, I I do. I get freaking hungry. I crave the same thing. But I I'm I got a lot of muscle, and I'm I you know, and I do eat mostly whole foods. So it's it's different. But yeah, the, the, it's what you described is is kind of what they're going through, and that's exactly the reason why we have these medicines and surgeries, mind you. Um, and what they say is that I feel normal again, or I feel finally what I think is normal anyway. Uh, yeah, that, that example, that analogy is is pretty much spot on. Right. Um, okay, so then kind of um, tying this together with our topic today. So weight loss medication. So how close are these things to being the magic bullet? Like, is there like a combination of pills that someone can swallow or injections that they can take, which as long as they keep up with it, so this is just like a very general overview, then essentially they're 
problems with hunger regulation, food cravings would be like solved for good? Like in theory, is that technologically available for us at this moment in time or it's not quite there yet? We're we're getting there. Um, there are currently a few agents out there that have that have worked in the past that do work in certain receptors in the brain that, for certain individuals uh, who will respond to it, has like a big time effect on their cravings. Uh, and then we have the thing is we have these different parts of our brain that control our appetite and what I'd call like the reward center, which kind of controls our cravings and wants, likes, and that type of thing. And we have agents that kind of modulate each part of those. And so you really got to find what works in certain individuals. Some drugs just work in, in, in most everybody no matter what. So I'll just say the newest one that's that everybody's been raving about that isn't actually available yet at the dose um, that was studied is, is the semaglutide uh, um, agent. And this is what's called a glucagon-like uh, peptide 1 uh, analog. And this this is some highly it, it it will it will just knock out your appetite, and along with your appetite, your cravings and all sorts of other things. And that's why we see just you know it's it's a funny term. We say robust. We use that all the time when we're talking about uh, medical terms. You see, you'll hear doctors, oh, it's just very robust. But it's a it's a it's robust. I mean, you you can see massive amounts of weight loss. I I use it for patients uh, all the time. Uh, in the dose that's um, approved for type 2 diabetes. Uh, they're trying to get it approved for uh, obesity at the, it's almost two and a half times. Um, the, the, the dose that I use is one milligram, but um, uh, the, the dose in the obesity studies is 2.4 milligrams uh, of the semaglutide. But it's a weekly injection, and it just knocks out people's appetites. And you see we're now seeing, you know, somewhere an average of 15% body weight loss over the course of a year. And that may not seem like a lot, but when you look at studies of just lifestyle, like simply lifestyle, you know, intensive lifestyle, you see an average of like 5 to 6 to 7% weight loss. And that doesn't seem like a lot either. So you get someone that's, you know, 300 pounds, you know, 10% is 30 pounds, 5, you know, 5% Fifteen pounds. So we're if you can get somebody to lose close to fifty pounds using a, a drug, that's pretty good. Now you know the question is always about side effects and long-term worry, but uh, so far it seems like this is especially you know studied in high-risk individuals. It seems like a very uh, a very powerful, safe drug that likely has most benefit versus risk or harm. So yeah, we have that, and we have a bunch of other agents that out there too. I, you know, you, if you watched my series, I, I went through kind of the, each of them and why we would use them and cases where we'd use them. The semaglutide stuff. If if I could just put everybody on that to start with, as long as insurance would pay for it, I'd like to start there usually because it's it's a safe, it's a safe, powerful medicine. Yeah, so wh why don't we just go through uh, all of these uh, kind of in a bullet po bullet point format? Obviously, we won't go to go into it in quite as much detail as you had done in your uh, series because it was very comprehensive. So I will link to it in the show notes below. But uh, let's talk about these glutides, so these uh, GLP-1 analogs. 
so how do these, uh, so the ones that I've, I know of are liraglutide, which is a daily administration, a semaglutide, which is once a week, it has this uh, week-long half-life, and then uh, dulaglutide, if I'm pronouncing that right. So how do these things uh, compare? And like, maybe just briefly, what's the What's the kind of mechanism of, of action and like what what do people feel? What, what are people supposed to feel when they, they try these things? Yeah, these are cool, cool drugs. There's actually this, the scientist I'm now uh, a little bit closer to just because I'm in one of these uh, Twitter DM groups with some very uh, high level scientists. I'm lucky to be in, in, in one of these groups. Kind of a, it's, it's really cool to be part of that. But uh these these glucagon like peptide ones in the 50s uh they did a study they thought that or they wanted to see if you injected sugar into your veins versus ingesting sugar raised your insulin levels um and it you would think that injecting sugar straight into your veins it would get to your pancreas your pancreas would detect it quicker and you would um shoot out a bunch of insulin but it turned out that people drinking the glucose had higher amounts, and they attributed this to uh, this. They, they, they called it the incretin effect for intestinal secretion of insulin. Well, it turns out that there are these a few of these incretin uh, hormones, and one of them is this GLP-1. So throughout the years, and they developed analogs to it because it has such a short half-life, our own endogenous GLP-1, they found... Um, in Gila, monster, Gila monsters, these little lizard things, their saliva had, had kind of this analog. That was the start of it, basically. But they make these things now to where our own endogenous uh, enzymes don't break it down so quickly. And that's kind of the difference between all these. So the first was exenatide. Uh, that was like a twice a day. Then it went to liraglutide, which, uh, or liraglutide, liraglutide, I don't know. Um, doesn't really matter. But that was like a once a day. Then we got into like dulaglutide or dulaglutide, dulaglutide, I don't know. Uh, once a week, once a week, then they found a way to make the exanatide a, um, uh, a, a, once, a once a week, which not many people use. But now we got the semaglutide and it's, it's once a week. And the, the differences between the semaglutide it seems it seems to it's the, it's a half life thing number one and number two it must it hits the receptors differently has to be up in the brain um, there's multiple receptors of this GLP one but there's parts of our brain that control appetite that uh, uh, when when stimulated shuts our hunger off GLP one also decreases gastric emptying which may have an effect, of course, on uh, appetite just uh, by that uh, alone. It does increase insulin levels, uh, as noted, uh, due to that incretin effect, and that's why it's so good at lowering blood sugar. It, it, it inhibits glucagon. Glucagon is, is, is this hormone that uh, gets our liver to sh push out more glucose. It's kind of a survival thing. It helps us helps us keep our homeostasis, but in type 2 diabetes, you you know, you don't want more blood sugar coming out. So it inhibits the glucagon and uh, decreases gastric emptying, helps increase insulin, which most people would say would should cause weight gain. But in, in fact, it, that's not what, you know, mainly controls our, our body weights. So 
people lose massive amounts of, of body weight because their appetite's down, they're eating much less. They can control their appetites. And uh, that, that's pretty much the mechanism. But that's um, the semaglutide is they think it's there's even a more powerful effect than, say, like the dulaglutide. And they are looking at higher doses of the dulaglutide now, and you can prescribe that for better diabetes uh, management. But um, uh, for, for obesity, we do do that as, as well because they, they all have similar effects. It's just that the semaglutide seems to have a, a little bit stronger of an effect, it seems. Right. So it's not just the half-life that's different, but it, it's also more potent, like milligram for milligram? That's that's the thought. I mean, there's there's hypotheses out there because it's a great question. It's like, well, why would this one? It, it has to hit the receptor receptors differently. That that's the only thing I can think. It has a more potent effect. Uh, that, and yeah, you also have to not just have more side effects either because the side effects are are can be pretty bad. The uh, nausea uh, is a bad one. It usually, it goes away in most people, but um, you don't want to. Uh, you don't want to get people feeling like crap just to make them not eat. So once that goes away, there's still a massive uh, appetite effect. Hey guys, just a brief interruption. If you like my content, value my opinion, and find my methods for getting and staying lean and building muscle intriguing, then I'm just letting you know that I do have a comprehensive, 100% individualized online coaching service. If you'd like to have me in your corner and use my best methods to achieve your fitness goals, then check out the show description for more information about how you can most easily reach me and apply. I will follow up with you and you and I together will determine if slash exactly how I can best help you to reach your goals. Whether it's my one-on-one -on -one or group coaching service, we will find a system that is the best fit for you. All right, that's it. Let's continue with the show. Right, right. Um, okay, so then uh, next one on our list uh, that uh, I wanted to touch on is uh, fentermine. So you had a video on that as well. And it was not just fentermine, it was um, fentermine combined with something that I'm... Uh, topiramate. Topiramate, yes. Um, so uh, yeah, what, what should we know about this in a general sense? And then how does that compare in efficacy with the um, GLP-1 analogs? Yeah, the fentramine has been along, uh, around for a long time. You know, the history of obesity medicines, you know, they, they looked at like DNP, people that are bodybuilders will know that, uh, uncoupler effect, it, it does raise your metabolic rate. It just comes with some um, nasty potential side effects. Uh, Such as dying. <laughs> narrow... narrow uh, therapeutic window there um safety safety is a concern so they don't they, we don't use that there, there may be a day where we have an uncoupler that we can do safely um i don't know though we'll, we'll see they tried to use thyroid hormone you know t3 you know, the problem is you get uh, arrhythmias um at, at a higher rate than what would be considered safe on a population level plus you you know you lose uh, lean body mass as well. Uh, I do use thyroid medicine. I, I, th I don't know if I mentioned this in there. I do use, there are patients who lose massive amounts of weight and they do have a metabolic adaptations. Their thyroid levels are a little bit lower, uh, almost like kind of that subclinical to clinical hypothyroidism, but they're, they don't have any Hashimoto's or autoimmune or uh, iodine deficiencies. And so I, I do add back some thyroid hormone, but that's, that's in special cases. But They've, they've looked at amphetamines and all sorts of stuff, but you know, a lot of side effects, heart rate issues. So with fentramine, they, it's an amphetamine-like medicine. It's, it's a, 
uh, sympathomimetic. So it works in our sympathetic nervous system, nor um, norepinephrine and, and some dopamine as well, and uh, has major um, major appetite control uh, when used by itself. Now the thing is, it's only approved what we call monotherapy for what like three uh, 12, 12 weeks, like three months, um, for whatever reason. That's here in the states anyway. And so recently, well, God, it's, I can't believe it's been this long, but it's, it's almost been 10 years, but they studied it with uh, a lower dose version of it in combination with something called topiramate. Topiramate was originally used for seizures, then they found it worked actually for migraines, and then they're like, oh, wow, this actually um, has some effects uh, with like cravings, and there's a little bit of weight loss. So the thought is you use smaller doses of each of these you don't get as many side effects but if you combine them and it hits different receptors in the brain uh, you could lower appetite without the side effects and that's what they did and they put put these things together and uh, use lower doses and you see you do see before the semaglutide came out it was the best it was the best most efficacious drug now the issue is Fenfen, which was out uh, in the 90s and then got taken off. It was a fentramine fenfluramine combination. And the fenfluramine component was really the, the bad part. That's the, It had some uh, activity at um, the, the, the serotonin receptor, the HT2B uh, uh, receptor. Um, anyway, they, they, they thought it was causing heart valve issues. And so they took it off the market. But fentramine was fine and stayed on the market, but people were scared about it, and it's only proved for you know three months, and so it doesn't really get used. But off-label, a lot of uh, obesity doctors will use it. Uh, again, it, it seems to be you know, especially in the lower dose combined with topiramate, longer term, it seems to not have any increased risk of cardiovascular events or anything like that that we could tell. Uh, but it is very powerful. The topiramate works probably in, in GABA receptors in the brain, uh, which is separate from the fentramine. So you're hitting a couple different receptors and using lower doses and having an effect. Topiramate also is used in binge eating disorders. So uh, there's absolute plausibility that um, uh, that 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 would work uh, well uh, together with the fentramine. And honestly, I think, you know, Personally, I think the, the the future is using a little bit of multiple different drugs like this to uh, and personalize it, but we're not there yet. We're that's going to be a long time before we really figure that out. And it may never figure it out because that you really it's hard to have long term studies to to see uh, if you're really personalizing it. But that's what I think. Right. So fentramine on its own has only been approved for twelve weeks at a time. And then, if I'm understanding you correctly, it was mainly due to that fen-fen thing with that uh, other compound in there, which was more problematic. So is it, if someone was using it for, like, I don't know, even like year-round, if someone has like really serious issues with appetite um, or someone who just has to go on a very, very long diet with the serious obesity, class 3 obesity, um, could it be very plausibly be even fine for like a very long duration? Yeah, so I think so. The thing is, it's it's just due to lack of studies, and then it's a generic drug. So this comes down to money. Unfortunately, I, I really wish we had 
billions of dollars to just know the truth as opposed to uh, drug companies and FDA and whatever having to um, play these games. Because really, it's probably fine. It's just monotherapy by itself uh, hasn't been studied long term. And that's, that's, that's simply the reason. Um, there's hypothetical concerns over the sympathetic mimetic actions of it. So, you know, you give somebody what seems to be like an upper, uh, but it's not like amphetamines. It's not, it's not addictive. Uh, like amphetamines have that more uh, ad addictive properties, but uh, we just don't have those long-term studies other than when it's combined with topiramate. And that's why it's approved uh, indefinitely. It's, it's, it's approved for long-term use, but by itself, it's just not, I, I think it's probably fine. It's just I still shy away from it more and try to go to the GLP ones because we have more data and it plausibility is is better with those, but um, it's probably fine. Right um, now, a side question off of this is um, another substance which you have mentioned in your series, but I often see it being brought up in the same conversation with fentramine is uh, sibutramine or sibitramine. I don't exactly yeah. know how to pronounce it. So you mentioned in your series that that has um, kind of not fulfilled the hopes around it or was taken off for uh, side effect uh, issues. So so what's the deal there? Um, how does that compare with fentramine in terms of efficacy and then uh, in terms of like side effect profile? Yeah, kind of. It's kind of a sim similar type of drug. It's a sympathomimetic drug. It's, it has a few other properties about it, but they they thought they saw uh, more events, uh, strokes, and things like that coming from from those using it, and so it was taken off. And there's there's actually a lot of controversy with that. It's it's interesting seeing debates. Um, but since it's not it's not even proved, I can't even I I wouldn't be able to prescribe it even if I wanted to. Uh, you can get it. You can get it on the um, the black market or whatever you want to say. But uh, yeah, that that's pretty much why they thought they saw a signal coming from harm there. And uh, again, there's still debate about it. But you know, it doesn't even matter because I can't even can't even get a hold of it. Even if even if I thought the data looked fine to me. But you know, really, when it comes down to obesity, it's like well. You know, for vanity purposes, yeah, you want to lose some weight. But um, uh, from a clinician standpoint, we want to reduce, uh, improve quality of life, improve quantity of life, ideally too. And um, and if you're increasing death with a medicine compared to not, probably not a good idea. And so that's why they don't approve it. But that's that's the gist. Yeah, yeah, no, that that totally makes sense. Um, so now the next uh, class of compounds that you discussed, this is what I, I found personally the most fascinating, because I I'm surrounded by a lot of people that are obese or just out of shape. They would want to get leaner, but they're not into the whole fitness lifestyle, so they just yeah. have this perpetual challenge with it, and a lot of them. Um, from the way they are describing their challenges, I really don't think that something like a semaglutide or a fentramine would be the magic bullet for them because their issue is not that they are hungry. It's uh, many times I'm looking at what they're eating and it's it's not they are not even big eaters. They are just like nibblers. Like I'm looking at what they're doing and my thought is like, man, if you just had better eating habits, like you, you could get contest lean. 
<laughs> in no time because like hepatitis just doesn't seem to be like a big issue for you. Um, but what their issue is, is that they just cannot refrain from eating super rewarding, hyper palatable foods. So uh, this uh, combination of uh, bupropion. Yeah, bupropion. Yeah, bupropion and uh, naltrexone. So, mm -hmm. uh, so what does this do? Because uh, this is uh, this is super fascinating. Yeah. So, so I, I have patients like like that. You know, you hear about the emotional eaters, the stress eaters, and um, I, you know, it's it's really hard to tease out what's truly just purely psychological versus what it doesn't seem to be like hunger but it's like cravings uh driving it um and so this bupropion medicine most people think of it as a, an antidepressant uh it works with uh, norepinephrine and, and dopamine in, in slightly different ways than the the fentramine but um uh it has yeah those reward center pathway um changes modulate modulating changes there so when you give that uh people tend to lose weight as opposed to gaining weight or you know it antidepressants tend to be either considered weight neutral but more so they're probably considered to be more um weight positive drugs but bupropion is one of the exceptions and if if people lose weight when they do it but they stop like it's not it's not a lot but they do lose weight it's also found that bupropion helps people quit smoking uh, so that's kind of cool so there's another medicine naltrexone and this medicine obviously is used it, it can be used for uh, it's an opioid antagonist but um uh we use it for uh drinking cessation alcohol cessation and it's interesting. I, I talked about the this POMC, one of these parts of your of your brains uh, goes up to uh, kind of higher areas in the brain that control appetite and hunger, and one of them is this um, POMC. And so the bupropion does stimulate this POMC a little bit. The problem is is there's this auto feedback uh, from that. One of the little things that's released is a, is an endorphin. And then it shuts that down. And POMC controls a lot of your hunger. So when you stimulate it with bupropion, there's this kind of auto feedback that shuts it down from the endorphins released. Well, the uh, naltrexone is an uh, opioid antagonist, and it blocks that that little beta endorphin. And so together, they kind of potentiate and synergistic, whatever, because the naltrexone by itself doesn't actually have much weight loss. So when you put them together, it's really a synergistic effect. They more weight loss than what you'd see if you just added the the weight loss by them by themselves so you, you put them together and there's there's people lose weight now the the real hypothesis of this and i think there's some studies coming out that that kind of look at this the people that truly have these cravings these more i would say reward pathway kind of dysfunctions where you like you said they're kind of they're not even hungry they just they're craving a, a cracker a salty potato chip or something like that i mean i have those issues sometimes at night i think all of us have that we're like i want something salty or i want something sweet tonight or i want something salty and sweet whatever well you give them these medicines and not only will their hunger decrease but those um differences in in cravings may uh vanish or at least be tempered down so much to where you can handle it
So that's the idea behind behind that combination of medicine. You know, I, I use it, uh, I don't use it as much anymore unless they truly have these like true craving issues because the, the amount of weight loss seen on a population level, it's not very good. It's like, you know, six, seven percent, which um, it's not that great on a population level compared to like the fentramine topiramate and the semaglutide. But uh, it's an option, and it's in it. The people that respond really well to it are those are the people I'm trying to find when I'm looking at them. Like the people with real cravings, where I'm like, "Hey, this might work for you," and it does. They respond very well. They need a low dose of it, and they and they, you know, end up losing ten, twenty percent of their weight because I've found the right person to use it in. Right. So it it almost seems like a, if someone was to use a combination of this and say semaglutide, then it, it would be like the ultimate killer combo. <laughs> like like at that point, you literally have no drive for food, like tasty or otherwise. It's just uh, like like that would be like a death punch. Like would that be a fair, fair characterization? What, to use them together? Is that what you're saying? To Yeah, like use this uh, bu- bupropion, naltrexone together with a semaglutide. So you get the hunger knocked out completely and the cravings. Like, like what's left? Like, what, what is there left to drive someone to eat? Um, yeah. In the, so in these cases, it, it does come down to, you know, there, there are places where it's, uh, it's just psychological. Like, I, I have patients who did bariatric surgery, and then I put them on massive amounts of different drugs. And they, they told me that they just can't stop themselves from getting a candy bar at the pharmacy when they're going to get their other medicines. And I'm like... Well, you know, at this point, you know, I, I don't think any drug or anything is going to work. There's something else driving them to eat. But, yeah, if if someone still had cravings while on semaglutide, their hunger and everything's tempered down, um, it, it wouldn't be a bad option. Semaglutide does such a good job. I mean, like, it just nails everything. I'm pretty sure. It, like, I don't know people that actually have these cravings while using semaglutide. But if they did, uh, th- this wouldn't be a bad option to to, um, to try. Yeah, I I actually know somebody who is uh, currently doing uh, Ramadan fasting, and uh, he just uh, took his shot of semaglutide, one milligram in the beginning of the week, and uh, this is the easiest Ramadan fast he has he's ever had. <laughs> <laughs> like uh, he he said it's amazing. Yeah, he said it, it's zero hunger. It's like not even thinking about food, and even when the feeding time comes, like he he has to pay attention to get in enough protein because. Even then, he would have a tendency to undereat, and uh, we are talking about a, a fairly lean individual here. So um, it's, it seems to be super powerful. Um, a funny thing that I saw, um, or, or actually, did I miss out anything that you mentioned in your series? Um, yeah, there's I, there's one called Lorcastrin. I don't think I went into it very much. It, it's it was uh, it was a, a cleaner drug version of the fenfluramine that got taken off, but this one also got taken off. They they thought they saw a signal for cancers, so uh, I, they may they may get away from these serotonin drugs. I don't I don't know. I'm not sure what the, no I don't even know what the signal what type of cancers it was. I, I'm a bit skeptical, but. Um, it wasn't that powerful of a drug anyway by itself, so whatever. Yeah, uh, a funny funny one that I saw um, is, uh, I believe it's pronounced Orlistat. Which, yeah, uh, oh yeah, that's right. Which, um, 
Yeah, I mean, at first it seems like, yeah, this is the only FDA-approved medication for, like, long-term use for weight loss. And then when I read into what it actually does, I'm like, oh, like, this this doesn't sound that great. So uh, what, what's your perspective on that one? Yeah, it's a lipase inhibitor. It basically helps you not absorb the fat that you eat, which means it has to go out your body, which means it goes out your ass. So you, you, it's, it's associated with... Uh, uh, loose stools, wet farts, and that type of thing. And so people don't use it that often. But it, it actually it works well. Of course, if you're if you're not uh, absorbing fat, you're not absorbing calories. You know, weight weight drops. The the problem is the side effect issues. So we don't use it too often. Um, if somebody suffers from constipation, it may be a, it may be something to go to. Uh, I just you know loose stools and and um, incontinence. You know. When you're when you're farting, it's not good. Obviously, people will not be happy, but uh, that's basically what it does. Yeah, and I'm guessing if someone is um, so, like, like let's take a hypothetical individual who managed to reach um, levels of obesity on a low-fat diet, uh, like it wouldn't even benefit that person. Right. I mean, yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah. Um, so. I guess uh, the million-dollar question, which I think anybody who is listening to this podcast is thinking about now, is why are these things not more widely available? Like it's, um, I mean, for one, for anybody who is struggling with obesity, like a a no-brainer. But even for those that aren't, I mean, you know, if you could just take something that would knock your hunger out and it wouldn't force you into actually other behaviors that even like, you know, health conscious, you know, people into the fitness lifestyle have to take on to lose weight, which is like a very limited selection of foods, often foregoing like a a well-rounded nutritious diet, um, because, you know, broccoli and large bowls of lettuce are just more filling than something that has a richer micronutrient profile. Like, man, if I could just take a shot of semaglutide in the beginning of the week and the diet would be a breeze, like, why can't I just walk into a, a pharmacy and, and get this? So what's the reason behind it? Is it the cost of manufacturing? Is it the lack of research? And then I guess eventually it will happen, but uh, how long do you think until that's going to happen? Yeah, great question. I think a lot. Of, so there's a few things at play here. Number one, people are still scared. Uh, doctors are still scared because of the fen-fen era. Um, number two, insurances don't pay for it all the time or at all. Uh, number three, there is a big obesity uh, stigma bias that basically hey, if you're not going to even try to uh, eat better, then you don't deserve this drug, which that's just that's just wrong because the drug could help them eat better. Like, it, And a drug would help them eat less regardless. It doesn't even matter. They should obviously try to change their lifestyle, but like, who cares? It, it, you know, it'll help them eat less regardless. It, it's not a, you know, it's not a cheat. It's not cheating. It just, it would help them. So, um those things combined expenses that's that's really the issue i the the semaglutide stuff it will be approved i guarantee somewhere in the summer or fall uh for obesity at higher doses it's going to cost a lot uh we have to get governments and insurances to 
pony up the money. The doctors have to be educated on it because they're still not prescribing other medicines, even though they should for those with obesity that struggle because they just tell them to eat less, move more, which, you know, it, yeah, that's what they need to do, but that's not very helpful. So, yeah, all those things combined uh, basically is, is why. So if everybody understood the need for them and understood the risk and, and whatever, uh, and insurances were paying for them and manufacturing costs went down, I think they would be more widely used. Yeah. Do you think it will ever get to a point where, you know, Joe Schmo, who just uh, who is not, not obese, just, you know, wants to get leaner for the summer, can walk into a pharmacy and buy uh, a dose of semaglutide? Uh, in some countries, uh, that's that's possible. In the, in the United States, not anytime soon. Wah, wah. That's <laughs> a sad ending. Um, I, I guess uh, just one last question, uh, which is obviously important to tackle, is um, in your clinical practice and clinical experience, like, are there people who actually benefit from using some of these tools pretty much on a permanent basis? Um, I, I'm guessing the goal is always to like use the least amount of drugs possible. And if you can achieve something by just uh, a healthy lifestyle, that's not only going to be logistically easier because you don't have to source certain substances year round to have access to it but um you know it's going to be cheaper it's 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 just going to be more sustainable in the long term but um like are there instances where someone is just pretty much maintaining like one of these tools in their arsenal at all times uh, on a permanent basis yeah that's the idea it's it's used for it's used indefinitely. We're trying to change the the paradigm thought of this, uh, this to be like the same way we would do for blood pressure or for type 2 diabetes or cholesterol or anything like that. If you use it and your weight goes down, uh, it's probable you're going to need it for long term. But you can, tr if you change your lifestyle habits to be like, okay, I am going to eat more broccoli and chicken breast and whatever and then you slowly wean off the drug it's possible the the food changes you made could hold your appetite at bay for i would i would say the majority of people they're gonna have to stay on it long term every time we take these medicines off the people start regaining their weight even if we switch them to a placebo and they don't even know it uh which is <laughs> that's 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 what's so interesting it's like hey you know jillian michaels did this whole thing about how you don't need this medicine and she failed to even read the study where they switched these people to placebos. Half of them, you know, they switched half of these people to placebos and whatever, and they're still getting the shots. And so they still think they're getting the medicine. And uh, they regain their weight because it's powerful appetite suppressing stuff. And that's, you know, kind of the, the issue here with those trying to lose weight and keep it off. So uh, I, I, you know, ideally people would come off of it, but the reality is uh, majority will still have to stay on them, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, uh, Jillian Michaels obviously is going to say that. I mean, I'm not going to lie, you know, like I work in the fitness industry and people come to me for, you know, diet advice and helping them to get lean. I, I can understand that this is scary to hear about revolutionary compounds like this for someone whose livelihood is to help people lose weight through giving them sound advice. 
But I don't know, like if, if this was available widely and I could just tell a client who comes to me with like serious problems with overeating and such, like, hey, yeah. walk into your pharmacy and get it. Like I would be more than happy to suggest that. Um, yeah, that's. I mean, that's good. There's a lot of personal trainers out there who just uh, basically... They, I don't. I don't understand. They they think it's a crutch or a, a way out, and it's just like, no. I mean, ideally, they would just do lifestyle changes. We wouldn't want to use a medicine and pay money and whatever potential side effects or whatever. But like, the reality is, we got to treat the the. We got to treat it. We got to treat it somehow. Um, so yeah, if you're, I mean, if you're a good coach, you'll understand the need for this and other behavioral therapies and being a good coach in general yeah um i i guess just just one random thing which uh like like to to give some sliver of hope for people who maybe they cannot get their prescription uh it's not available in their country or whatever uh, is there anything like over the counter that is uh, obviously it's not gonna rival in, in efficacy these things but that's at least like somewhat potent at uh, reducing appetite and, and cravings and those sorts of things that you have seen? Yeah, there, there's some supplements out there that they're just, the long-term safety, it's it's not very good. We got fiber supplements like glucomonin and some of these things that may have an effect, but even still, they the efficacy of weight loss doesn't seem to be much with them. Uh, honestly, I would just stay away from them. You know, him being in, in these fat burner type of appetite suppressant, supplements out there i just i wouldn't be able to even recommend them because i long term i'm not sure of the safety on them so you might as well just stay away from them caffeine has a maybe a slight little tiny little effect but even still not much um so i, I would just stick to spending your money on big huge salads and stuff like that volume i mean that's the way we treat uh, uh preach at rp is basically volume 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 low palatability foods um first and then you know if you want to have a treat obviously have it but uh, i would i would would put your money towards that stuff yeah yeah for sure yeah i mean and that's why i was uh, so excited about your series because like it's like that would be so cool if there were like truly effective appetite suppressants that were not super strong stimulants because like yeah Caffeine works, um, yohim bean works, but if I cannot sleep from it and then I'm just adding, you know, a, like wakeful hours to my diet and more hungry hours to my diet that way, then I'm not really winning anything. So if there was an appetite suppressant that also allowed me to sleep, that would be fantastic. Um, it's just a shame that they are prescription <laughs> medications. But anyway, um, Dr. Spencer, this was incredibly informative. So... Um, even though we didn't spend much time uh, just beating around the bush and we got right to the real thing, we still managed to uh, talk for almost an hour. So I'm super appreciative of your time and for you uh, agreeing to come on the podcast. So um, yeah, I guess last question is um, where can people find out more about your work and uh, any anything that you would like to mention? Yeah, uh, Instagram at Dr. Nadolsky, D-R-N-A-D-O-L-S-K-Y. I'm there. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I even have a TikTok, but I hate TikTok. It's just uh, talk, the, the, the comments are toxic and there's a bunch of idiots there. But um, yeah, and then RP, of course, RP Strength. Follow, follow all the RP folks.